Well, take your Bible this morning and look over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, each of these weeks is so very, very crucial for the life of our church. I really don't ever want you to miss a Sunday as these truths are vital for us and both just as a church body for you individually as a believer, we want to prioritize the, the Lord's day. Uh, but I, we enter into this section here in 2.14 through 26. I'll be in it this week, next week. We'll stop the week before Christmas on the 22nd there just briefly. But let me read the text for you. Certainly, if you've been around the faith a little while, you have uh, seen this truth. But James says there, you follow along at 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Or what good is this? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you you want to be shown, you fullest person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Such an important, vital truth. Author Daniel Doriani recounted this story in, in one of his writings. And I have run into many people in a similar way. He said, I went to the college in the 70s when students still hitchhiked from time to time. And he said, one day I caught a long ride from a truck driver. As an enthusiastic new Christian, I hoped to guide our conversation toward the faith. Indeed, we had an intense conversation about the Bible and the faith. And after about two hours, the driver declared his problem. He said, I understand that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that I am a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But I'm a married man and a cross-country driver. I have girlfriends in several cities, and I don't want to give them up. End of quote. Now the question that I ask, and the question that James asks, Is this man a Christian? Or maybe I could pose it another way to you. Is someone's intellectual understanding of the gospel enough to save them eternally? 
You understand the question. Can you just understand Christ? Understand His work? Affirm that He died on the cross and yet somehow live a duplicitous life or a life with no works? James would ask the question, is that man saved? Now, as we approach James chapter 2, James is contending that a living faith is a fruitful faith. That faith, as we've already seen, is tested in trials. It's tested in temptation. It's tested in our obedience to God's Word. And then we just left off that it's tested by one's reaction to partiality. And over the course of these months, James has exhorted us, certainly to say the least, but to be a doer of the Word, to control our tongue, to help orphans and widows in their distress, to not hold the glorious faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality. And now as we come into James 2.14, he asserts the absolute impossibility of claiming faith apart from works. And so I bring you now to the fifth argument in his book, if, you, if it comes up there, that faith is tested in our relationship to works. And it's in 2, 14 through 26. It is the most extensive subject matter, at least in James' letter. In fact, it's interesting as you count up words that of the 16 times in this book, the word faith is addressed 12 times. So right here in, 12, or in 14 through 26, it's mentioned 12 times. And in, 12, and in chapter 2, 14 through 26, of the 15 occurrences of the subject or the thought of works, 12 are mentioned right in this section. And so the relationship between saving faith and the fruit of faith are inseparably linked together. Now, make no mistake about it, and that's why I just say this, that every week is crucial for us at the church. Every week for us to sit under the Word of God. If for some reason a week comes by, make sure you catch up on our website. But salvation is certainly by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. However, as we shall see, salvation that is by grace alone is never truly alone. It is always accompanied by works. And so as we walk into this text, my purpose as always is to teach the text to expose what James says about the relationship between faith and works. And I don't think I mean expose it. My goal is to persuade you on what James, the writer, says under the Spirit of God. Now, the key to the entire paragraph, you're looking for that as a Bible teacher, is verse 14. Look at it again. Here's the key of the whole section. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? Now, James puts two two questions there. He says, if a man says he has faith, but he has 
no works, but he does not have works, question mark. Then he adds a second question there in verse 14. Can that faith save him? Now, both questions imply in the language of the text, in the Greek language, in a negative answer, no, obviously, right? That's how it's written. A profession of faith lacking in works that accompany that profession will not save a man. It will not save a woman. And the questions then in verse 14 are centered around an empty profession. In fact, just look at the text again with your eyes. He says there, if someone says, there's the key, he has faith. It does not say if a man has faith, but the profession there, or the empty profession, is verse 14, if someone says that he has it. It's not that he does, he's claiming to have it, and the emphasis on the word says. Says, just for you to know, is in the present tense, and you've met many people like this. It's in the present tense, meaning that this individual is repeatedly advancing the claim. It is a claim of faith without any evidence of the faith. The man himself, the woman, we could say, regards himself, herself as a believer. In fact, they may be more orthodox than you. In fact, I'm sure that the demons are more orthodox than us in many areas as far as intellectually understanding it. And it could be that this man, this woman, believes that the Bible is God's Word. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe in His death. They believe in His resurrection. But James would say to us, what use is it? Or what good is it? What profit is it if He has no works? So James wants to be very clear that faith saves, but Grace Church of the Valley, not this kind of faith. Verbal faith, apart from a demonstration of that faith, saves no one. And so here's the question. Can an inactive, inactive, unproductive faith save him? Can a faith, here's the real question, that demonstrates no mercy, save? And the answer would be, of course not. Now, James leaves no doubt regarding the theme, at least in verse 14. In fact, glance down again with your eyes at verse 17. He says there, emphatically clear, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, James says, apart from works, underline this, is useless. Glance down with your eyes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then glance down to verse 26, for as the body, is, as, for as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Now, to some in the early church, and I think you know this, James appears to contradict Paul's teaching 
on justification by faith alone. This was the argument in the early times of our Christian faith regarding the canonicity of even the book of James. And we'll certainly say more on that next week, but this exposition will reveal that they're not in contradiction at all. They wrote, if you look at Paul and James, from different perspectives. They wrote, as you know, with different concerns, and they wrote to different audiences, as will be made clear. And again, I just remind you that James preceded Paul. You know that. It's the first book ever written in the New Testament. So I don't think by this time James was looking at Paul in Romans. Romans came after James wrote this book. But they're not contradicting each other. James condemns not faith per se, but a hypocritical faith that fails to produce spiritual fruit. Now, you'll note where the, where the question comes in is centered in on verse 24. Look at it again. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay? That is very clear. He's justified by works. Now, Paul said, I'm going to see if this comes up. Does this come up on, on the screen? Romans 3.28. Here's what Paul said. We maintain that a man is justified apart from works of the law. Maybe the next slide. You can see this. There's other scriptures that talk about this. Romans, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. If you go next slide to the book of Galatians, you'll see that Paul said, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Well, since by the works of the law, no flesh is going to be justified. And I think there's one more. There it is in Galatians. No one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Those are key scriptures. Paul declared salvation is sola, we would say, fide, which is by faith, what? Alone. And this is why Luther, if you read his preface to his 1522 edition of the New Testament, at least at first, Luther called James, have you heard that? A right strawy epistle is what he called it. He couldn't reason how Paul would make those statements and then James would make that statement that he's justified by works. But clearly there is not a contradiction regarding the relationship of faith and works. I think it's very important to just explain the context. Paul, in his work on Romans, Galatians, is combating what we would call Jewish legalism, which insisted upon the need for works to be justified. James has a different context in mind. He's insisting upon the need for works in the lives of those who have been already justified. Or if I put it another way, Paul was focused on faith before one's conversion, and James is focused on faith after one's conversion. 
Paul is emphasizing in his work the believer's entrance into salvation by faith, while James is emphasizing what faith looks like after conversion. In fact, one scholar put it this way, that Paul and James do not stand face to face, if you will, fighting against each other in a sword battle. No, they stand, if you will, if you can picture this, back to back, fighting opposite foes. And so we know that the Bible plainly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. But beloved, the Bible also teaches that saving faith, where it is true and where it is genuine, will always find itself in expression to a life of obedience. And so we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, but he also said, did Paul, that we are created for what? Good works. Or to put it another way, the root of our salvation is grace through faith. But the fruit of our salvation is a life of good works. Could say it this way, that the new birth must be followed by the new life. That's what the Scriptures teach. That the nature of faith not only saves, but it also transforms the believer into a life of works that accompany, that follow that faith. And and so just to be crystal clear, he is not arguing, James, that works need to be added to your faith for salvation. But he is saying that our faith will be characterized by works. And so as I open the message up on the story of the guy hitchhiking, I've ran into hundreds of people like that. You know people like that. You have family members of people like that. You say, but Scott, they, they comprehend. I, oh, sure. And so do the demons. You say, but Scott, I was there when they went for it. Sure. But, but unless something is going to back that up and validate that faith, James would say to us, what good is it? What use is it if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. Now, clarity would say works, and we understand this, do not and will not, and will never bring us to Christ, but they certainly follow, do they not? After we come to Christ. And so the question that James is asking for us is what is the nature of saving faith? Or to put it in another way, what are the marks of genuine faith? Is saving faith merely a confession of a doctrinal truth? Or, as James would say, is it intensely practical, requiring works to validate the genuineness of what is professed? James is going to say yes. So he asked that question, verse 14, can that faith save a man? And the, the thought would be, can it save him on judgment day? Or can an artificial profession save him? And the answer is 
No. Now, as we walk through this in the weeks to come, let me show you where I'm going to go, okay? Or where the text goes. How are we to understand this text? Well, from James 2, let's begin at 15, down through 26, he gives four illustrations that define the nature of true saving faith. It's not hard to understand. Out of those illustrations, the first two illustrations are negative, okay? They describe a false faith that is dead, that is unproductive. Then he gives us two positive illustrations describing what true faith is, that faith that is alive and that faith that is active. It's not hard to understand. Two illustrations are negative, describing a spurious faith. Two illustrations are positive, describing a faith that's alive and active. And the positive illustrations, as we read already, is that of Abraham and then that of Rahab, the prostitute. So here's where we're going. Week one, the artificial compassion of a dead faith. We'll look at that. Next week, we'll see the artificial confession, or first is the artificial compassion, then the artificial confession of a dead faith. Then we'll come back after Christmas, the authentic credibility of Abraham's faith, and then finally, the authentic credibility of Rahab's faith. This is so important. He exposes two examples of a fruitless faith set against two examples of a genuine faith. Now, the question that I raise to you that you, as even as you're equipped or as you look individually or as you think of the people you minister to, is what kind of faith do you possess? And maybe this is just so key, maybe for me, because I've shared with you before, man, I sat in one of the great, healthy, strong churches for at least six years as an unsaved man. Listening to the best Bible teaching maybe in the world. All the while that I'm sitting there, I'm unregenerated. All the while, at least, you know, six years prior, I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed on the dotted line, was baptized the next week, and my life never changed. So this has intense meaning to me. And I think of that one young man who I led to Christ. At least I thought I led him to Christ. Stayed up with him all night giving the gospel to him. Just preaching, pouring over the scripture, pouring over the work of Christ, pouring over the cross, pouring over his shed blood, pouring over the fact that God is holy and that you are a sinner. And I saw this man under tremendous conviction. And then as the sun rose to get down on our knees and to pray with that young man and to see that young man profess Christ, but then only subsequently in the weeks and the months to follow to have him walk away from the faith altogether, to live with women in sin, multiple women. What do you do with someone like that? That's just one example. You have so many. I played college basketball. It's not funny, with a host of guys all claiming Christ. Quite a shock for me to be around people who knew the words, who said the words, who claimed the life, whose mom raised them, whose grandma raised them, 
And they were nowhere in terms of how it affected them. What do you do with that as a young man? And so let's find out, what does James say here? So let's look at the first illustration this morning. It's an artificial compassion of dead faith. Pick up the text. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Let's just stop there. It says it's poorly clothed. Maybe one translation you're, you hold, it might say even naked and lacking in daily food. The thought is just not so much that they're naked, but they're just poorly clothed. You might just recognize them. You're going to see them, and you get the picture. He's going to provide an illustration. James is so picturesque, isn't he? I mean, he just, he, he just points it out like this. Now, glance down at the text. Just don't miss this for a second. He says, if a brother or what? Sister. Now, you say, well, that's nuanced a little bit in the language. No, it actually doesn't just say brother. It says brother or sister. Enough for me to say, this is the man or woman at Grace Church of the Valley. Put it that way. They're here. They're in our midst. They're in, at least we would say, in our extended community. But I actually think James is kind of going right after these people. In other words, they're part of the church. They're in the worship service. And now your mind's going back to chapter 2. In walks the rich man, the gold-fingered man. You sit over here. And then in comes the poor man. You sit over there at my footstool. And so here they are. They come into the flock. It's a brother or sister, presumably in Christ. And they're just poorly clothed, if you will. They're in rags. They're in need of food. They are cold. They are hungry. And you say, well, what happens? Well, look at the text in verse 16. And one of you, and we'll take it as one of us at Grace Church of the Valley, says to them, go in peace, shalom, Shalom was what I added. That's what that means. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. You've heard that expression before. He says, go in peace. It's that term shalom. It just means either to greet one another or it's, it's an actual expression of a farewell to someone. It's a very biblical word. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And we don't have to take the time. It's not a wrong word. It just means go in peace. It's a fine statement. But here it's used as a cliche. It would be like you saying or me, goodbye and good luck. I mean, I see you. I, I see you, but later, if, if you will, is the thought. And then what's convicting about it, I don't know if it shows to you, but when it says be warmed and filled and be filled, you know, the language is expressive. Just as I told you, if someone says he has faith is in the present tense, this is somebody always repeating that they have faith. Okay, now this expression here, be warmed and be filled is what we call present, but we call these passive verbs. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it's not active. It's just passive. And the idea is someone is saying to this brother, this sister, let someone else be warming and feeding you. Or you could even say warm and feed yourself. And and if you want to push the point in the language, it, it might even be more wicked than that. 
And the thought could be, God help you, brother. God help you, sister, is the thought. In other words, they could be either telling them the person to warm and feed themselves, or it could be that God will help those who help themselves. And the thought here of this person who says this is not that they are physically unable. They're simply unwilling. I will be praying for you, brother. I will pray for you, sister. Or God helps those who helps themselves. I wish you well, brother. I wish you well, sister. You look cold. You look skinny. Hey, eat a little bit more. Take care is the thought. God bless you. Okay? It's like saying to somebody out of work in our church, hang in there. God will provide for you. Or even worse than that, saying to a single mother with children, take it easy and we will pray for you. James is saying, if you say that, and then look back down at the text, everything's the text, isn't it? Verse 16, without giving them the things needed for the body, James says, comma, what good is that? And so he answers his question in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has no faith? Or he says he has faith, but he doesn't have works. Does that faith save him? And then he finally says at the end of 16 there, what good is that? Now, certainly, you are to show wisdom, are you not? I mean, I've had a guy come to our door at the church office many times, and I've helped him before. But we're not always going to help the guy i mean there's parameters is there is there not someone was sharing with me this week that they that someone needed money and so he put him to work on his farm so that he can give him some money that doesn't mean if just somebody shows up and they need money that you feel like you're obligated in every sense there's wisdom that comes in there there's other scriptures that come in but just take this as it is this might be someone in our flock that you know someone who's struggling One author told the story of a queen. Picture this. Several centuries ago, a queen, and she left her coachman sitting outside during the winter while she attended the theater. And the drama that she saw in the theater was so heart-wrenching that the queen just sobbed throughout the entire performance. But when she returned to the carriage and discovered the coachman had frozen to death, she did not shed a tear. I mean, she was deeply moved by the fictional tragedy, but completely untouched by the real one, which she was directly involved and for which she was maybe even directly responsible. I mean, it is amazing how some can become emotionally moved by a movie, Moved by a play, moved by a song, moved by a tragedy, yet show no compassion for the plight of someone in absolute distress. I mean, in our artificial, self-centered world, fantasy often becomes more meaningful than reality itself. And so James just says, what good is it? The heartless compassion here is just mind-boggling. I mean, the insensitivity or the lack of sensitivity, I thought, would shock 
pagans, right? Let alone the body of Christ. This would shock some Democrats, if I could put it that way. And and here we are. And if it's just words, how utterly artificial. And so the question of verse 14 is answered. They can't be saved. That's quite a statement for me to make. In fact, it's even hard to make it. You say, well, what do you mean they're not? They're not saved. You say, because of that? Yeah, because of that. It reflects a heart that knows nothing of the mercy of God shown to them at salvation. I mean, here is a total failure. Look back at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. It's a total failure of that. And the grave consequence here was the grave consequence, look back at 2.13, just up a few verses, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown, what? No mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We've got to be real, don't we? I was just thinking, even in the summer, some of you just you have a heart for this. I remember there was a need in our flock and some men gathered together at um, Summerfest. And, and, and rather than just talking about it, this need, they just, let's do it right now. Just make the decision. Just let's, let's do this. And I, I like that amongst some of our men. Let's just get it done. Let's not talk about it. Let's do it. And here, this is the thought. You've got, you see that need. You want to help that need. Now, what James states then, though, here is just his in-your-face summary condemnation. You say, what is it? Well, it's there in the text. Look at verse 17. He said, so also, faith, what? By itself, if it does not have works, is, what? Dead. And that word for dead is just in Luke 7.15, the word for a corpse. Your faith is dead, James says. There's no life in it. What more needs to be said? Can that faith save him? The answer emphatically is no. It will not. Now, hear me. It's not faith plus works. No. It is faith, true faith, that produces the works. So that works then are the outgrowth of a changed life brought about by faith. Listen, beloved, real faith saves. But that kind of faith that we're studying today cannot save anyone. You say, well, why? It's dead. There's no life. There's nothing on the EKG. You don't need to get those ringers out and just juice the guy. There's, it's a flat line. This faith, you say, but Scott, they, they're orthodox. You say, Scott, my brother's orthodox. My sister, you know, my mom. You say, my dad. You say, my uncle. They know, okay, is it working? Is it practical? Does it show mercy? That kind of faith here is not just anemic, like they need a blood transfusion. It's dead. It's speaking of a corpse. I like how John Calvin said it. He said, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never, what? 
alone. It's a good statement. It's faith alone, Calvin said, that justifies. We get that, okay? Ephesians 2.8. But faith that justifies, Calvin said, is never alone. There's going to be good works packed in it, right? In fact, he would say, look down at 2.20. Do you want to be shown, you fullest person, that faith apart from works is what? Useless. 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is what? Dead. Now, I tried to read a couple guys, one professor from Dallas Seminary, who said this is just somebody who's going to lose and suffer the loss of rewards. And I categorically reject that. James is saying this faith expressed, you know, artificial faith, Verbal faith that's not backed up can't save anyone in an ultimate sense. And beloved, I know you know this. We went through 1 John 2. The one who says, I've come to know him in 2.4 and does not keep his commandments is a what? Liar. And the truth is not in him. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the what? He's in the darkness. Until now. In fact, look over in 1 John just for a second. Go turn, turn right just a few pages. That was 1 John 2, 4 and 2, 9. But you remember this in 1 John 3, 7. Little children, the apostle said in 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Well, how so, John? Whoever practices righteousness is what? Righteous. You got to practice it. This is so clear. Okay. Look at verse 9. No one, 3 9, born of God makes a practice of what? Sinning. Now, I sin, you sin, I sin all the time. I had to confess sin while I'm in worship this morning. Lord, my spirit's not right here. Lord, would you just help me, right? I have to conf- but listen, this point here, 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Look at the text. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who is the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his what? His brother. Beloved, this is just the consistent teaching of the Scripture. Jesus said in one of the most shocking statements in the entire Bible, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, what? The will of my Father. And so here, as you go back to James, okay, how different was the response of the early church in Jerusalem after Pentecost, of which James was a leader, when those new believers, at least in Acts chapter 2, as well as in Acts chapter 4, says they begin selling their property, and I understand this is a unique situation, and they sold their property, they sold their possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And they did that in chapter 4. But here, here's the point, artificial compassion apart from action, is a dead faith. And so compassion is one of the evidences of a saving 
faith. So listen, I don't, Don came up here. I don't know what that's going to look like on Saturday. So what do you mean you don't know what it's going to look like? Well, I mean, you, okay, there's presents, there's a party, there's pinata. But I just, I don't know what it's going to look like when I and you put your foot in the door at Young Life. But we just ought to show them the love of Christ, whatever that looks like, right? And, and you just need to be prayed up to love on these families because it's not going to be like you're walking into church. <laughs> it's going to be a lot different than that. And they're probably going to look different. They're probably going to talk different. Praise the Lord. But, 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 but compassion, right? I'm thinking of positively. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my what? Disciples. Let me ask you men. What kind of legacy are you creating? So I got my legacy. I'm passing this down onto my sons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this in. And Jim Rickard came in September and instructed us about a living trust. It's awesome. It's great. You want to be wise, right? You don't want your stuff to go to probate. But could you say that you're like Job? And I'm asking myself this. What do you mean, Job? Just listen. You don't have to turn there. It's Job 31. Remember, the the dudes were just all over the guy. Hey, either you're in sin. Hey, you've been in sin. You've got to be in sin. God would never let this happen to you. In fact, Job, you haven't taken care of people. And Job said this. You ever seen it? 31.16. He said, and I'm wondering, can I say this? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired... Or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail? Or have eaten my morsel alone? And the fatherless has not eaten of it? For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. And if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. In other words, that's the stuff that he did do. He is a righteous man. And a righteous man not, means not only taking care of your own, it means having some eyes to see outward, doesn't it? Now, this is an unbelievable passage, isn't it? Because all I know, and it will happen, and it could happen soon, but Jesus said when the Son of Man comes in His glory, Jesus said that He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And while they're all gathered before him, Jesus said, I'm going to separate them from one another as the shepherd, shepherd, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on the right, picture, and he will put the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And you immediately ask, well, why would he, what, who's the sheep? And, and what qualifies them to be prepared for you from the foundation of the world? Why? Here's what Jesus said, and you know it. I was hungry, and you gave me something to what? Eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. Think about Saturday. And you invited me in. And you, he said, I, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger? And when, Lord, did we invite you in? And when were you naked? And when did we clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And here's what the king will say. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it, what? Unto me. That's pretty practical. And conversely, he says this to the others. He will say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it, what? Unto me. So James says, faith, listen, if it's by itself, Verse 17, and if it does not have works, it is what? Dead. Listen, as the apple is not the cause of the apple tree, but simply the fruit of it, even so good works are not the cause of our salvation, but they are a sign of the fruit of the same. John said this in 1 John three seventeen. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. So listen, beloved, I don't exactly know what this looks like for us individually, what it looks like for us corporately. Certainly, these things need to be put in our family. But as you think of Christmas and maybe Lord's blessing to us, we have angel tree coming. We don't know how many of these families will come, but what an opportunity for us to to minister in that way. And that's just at Christmas season. But we've got a prison ministry. Maybe some of the women need to start up a women's site that would go share with them. And, and even as we come to the Lord's table, I've been just praying this morning, how do we go from this into the Lord's table? Well, in this way, look on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his life. Remember his action. Just think of what Paul said of him in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know, he says, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was, what, rich, he became, for your sake, poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
He who dwelt in infinite glory left glory with his father to come down and become poor. I'm thinking, did not Jesus say the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. It could be that as you walk into this Christmas season, you don't have much physically. But just remember the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of Matthew twenty twenty eight that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. What? A ransom for many. You think of here he was, the king of glory, the one who dwelt in unapproachable light, and he's born in a, in a what do you call it, just a, a cave probably. He's laid, if you will, in a manger. He comes to give birth, as some of you pregnant women, which might be half of our church, and, and he, there's no room at the inn for him. It's God in the flesh. And Philippians, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made into the likeness of men. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a what? On a cross. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So as we come to the Lord's table, remember him. Remember his sacrifice for you.